4: And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. A couple of data points that I want to lay out here for you all. On Monday, Dr. Brittany Cobia, a physician in Alabama, said that uh, all of the patients in her hospital who are dying right now, 100% of them, are unvaccinated people. And she said, one of the last things they do before they're intubated is beg me for the vaccine. Uh, These are people who are, you know, in all probability going to die. She says, I hold their hand and tell them, I'm sorry, but it's too late. Meanwhile, over at Fox News, starting in June of this year, last month, they instituted a uh, a vaccine pass. They call call it the Fox Clear Pass, where you have to prove that you're vaccinated to get into the building and interact with other staff people. And uh, if you don't, then every day you have to be tested for COVID. Meanwhile, Emmanuel Macron, the president of France last week said, okay, that's it. You can't go to bars, restaurants, sporting events, anything Unless you can prove that you're vaccinated, they've got an electronic vaccine, you know, essentially a vaccine passport—over there. And I thought this one particular line—you know—somebody challenged him on this uh, during a press conference, and he said, "I am in favor of the French line right now. I no longer." In you know, other words, people are saying, "Well, other countries don't don't mandate uh, vaccine passports." Uh, He says, I'm in favor of the French line right now. I no longer have any intention of sacrificing my life, my time, my freedom, and the adolescence of my daughters, as well as their right to study properly, to those who refuse to be vaccinated. This time, you are staying at home, not us. So... Should we have vaccine passports in the United States? Should we mandate vaccines? On the line with us is Julio Rivera, Editorial Director of Reactionary Times, contributor to the Newsmax, AmericanThinker, and Townhall.com, ReactionaryTimes.com, and on Twitter, oh yeah, it's Julio. Julio, welcome back. So, uh, ready to mandate vaccines?
5: No, no. I mean, um, you know, there was a Saginaw, Michigan kid, 13 years old, that just died recently after taking the second dose of the vaccine. And listen, obviously, that's a rare case. Hey, listen, Um, there was a guy here in Oregon
4: who died the other day after drinking milk.
5: Yeah, I, that's true. That's true. Listen, the the <laughs> majority of these cases with COVID, over eighty percent are asymptomatic. Um I know that a lot of people um were were, you know, uh criticizing the vaccine of because of how fast it was produced. There's arguments on both sides of that obviously. There are no arguments of, on
4: the other side, Julio. There are no,
5: there are. They are, they are,
2: they are people of, who are vaccinated yeah, yeah.
4: are not dying. And when they do, it's Listen, so Tom, rare that it becomes the exception that, that people like you can point to. But, it, you know, 99 percent no, no. of the people, 99 plus percent of the people who are dying right now, we and 97 plus percent of the people who are hospitalized right now are unvaccinated. We do know that, Julio. Listen,
5: that's fine. You're using, you're, you're citing examples from one doctor. The, the fact of the matter I'm is- citing I'm citing
4: examples from the, the Centers Bearing. for Disease Control. Listen,
5: you know, if Dr. Fauci and, and the exchange between Dr. Fauci and Dr. Rand Paul. There's gain-of-function research being done in that in that laboratory. We still don't know a lot about Which has nothing to do with whether, whether or we or should be vaccinating this vaccine, people. Whether or not this vaccine is even effective against it. You know, there's people that are getting sick after the fact, and there's all kinds of reports going back and forth. I actually just read something um, that was published by uh, a British university saying that the, the antibodies persist in your body for up to uh, nine months after uh, you've actually uh, had it and, and already are over COVID nineteen, so listen. Uh, uh, but the flip side of that, Julio, not, uh,
4: is that the Delta variant will reinfect people who have even in within the last month had the first strain or even the Alpha strain of COVID. That the Delta strain.
5: Oh, so are, are we supposed to get vaccinated? You know, indefinitely, just every year? We're going to rely on these vaccines that are that are rushed out to the market. Um, if so you know, want to live, completely properly
6: and, tested, and keep in mind, you know about 20 uh, percent
4: about 20 percent of men who have had symptomatic COVID never ended up in the hospital, never died, but 20 percent of men who have had symptomatic COVID, the the, the major long term side effect of it is erectile dysfunction. Doesn't that alarm okay. people on the right?
5: I don't, I mean, I listen, it's a bad thing, I guess, but I mean, listen, there's, there's, as far as
4: the vaccine would prevent that
5: mandating people to take a vaccine, which they don't necessarily feel comfortable with what went into developing the vaccine. That's the problem I have. You're a liberal, Tom. Are you supposed to be all about choice? If I don't feel comfortable with that, why should I be forced to do it to travel around?
4: I'll give you that. I'm not you know I, I asked the question should we be mandating vaccines or should yeah. we be doing vaccine passports I am not specifically suggesting that we should be mandating vaccines although I think that you know within the a month or two or three when when these vaccines finally get FDA approval so that they can be mandated by schools and and other institutions mm-hmm. like measles is and smallpox and things like that yes, that yes. they should be included in that but for right now I would like to see a vaccine passport. We've got this, what is it called, V-safe, I think, v V-safe over the CDC has a vaccine passport system all in place. All they need to do is push a button. I actually signed up for it. Uh, New York and California have actually rolled them out. The Empire Passport pass in, in mm-hmm. New York. I don't know what it's called in California. But the uh, bottom line is I have, Louise and I, the only restaurant that we've gone to in the last you know month or two since you know we've been reopened, uh, has been a re- have well, two restaurants have been restaurants that have large outdoor seating areas where we can sit six feet ab- away from people because I don't want to get the delta you know even though I'm fully vaccinated I could still get the delta variant and and ha- end up with long covid and you know it's not going to kill me but it could make me really really sick I don't want that to happen exactly if, yeah if, it depends a on the- if a restaurant was to have a sign that said you will be checked. For your COVID vaccination status, just like you know, just like they check to see if you're 21, that's if they their serve right. alcohol,
5: they're right. As a private, as a private business, they can do that. I would start patronizing no that
4: restaurant. Mm-hmm.
5: Yeah, and that's and that's your right to feel that way. Listen, I personally have not gotten the vaccine. My daughter has an autoimmune commis- uh, condition who's, a, who's 18 years old. She had to get it. I and my mother, who's 80 years old, got it, and I feel good about both of them having it. I personally don't have any issues, so I haven't had it. I think, like I said, it boils down to choice. If private businesses want a mandate, and they were doing this in baseball stadiums, um, you know, they, they were having vaccinated sections and things like that, if they feel the need to do that, you can go ahead and do that it really is a matter to me that people have to go ahead and kind of figure out what's right for them whether it's businesses whether it's individuals and that's okay but once you start saying that you can't go in and out of the country and they stifle your ability to move around the world that's a problem i'm a multinational myself and i wouldn't want to see you know that i have to be forced to get a vaccine in order to go back to Europe. I'm back in the United States now, but I'm leaving back to Europe in in a matter of a couple of days and I go back and forth obviously to see my kids. I don't want to have that issue.
4: Yeah. Uh I believe Canada is requiring proof of vaccination when they reopen their border with the United States. I think on August 9th. Yeah. I could be wrong on that, but uh so you're okay with individual businesses saying you've got to prove your vaccine status to come in if they decide to make that choice why exactly, because we?
5: liability insurance they may they make affect their costs depending on how they handle sure, COVID.
4: absolutely you know, going forward so why not rate. we don't know
5: how a lot of this is going to play out
4: yeah why not schools
5: no if the school if it comes down to where those uh brand new vaccines that were kind of hastily put together and granted it was based on a lot of the research that was done on SARS and that's what I was saying that there's good arguments on both sides of the vaccine because you know it is newer but it was based on older it's a 20 year old vaccine schools, really uh, if elements of it are, and elements of the research that was we'll used to develop it are, sure. Um, if, if schools go ahead and do that, what are you going to do? I mean, unless you want to send your kids to a non-vaccine, non-vaccine mandating private school or something like
7: that, if you can. Go well, ahead that and happened.
4: To I mean, yeah, you know, there was a, there was this Catholic school in the news a couple of days ago where they're where they're saying we will not accept. Any children who are vaccinated? Uh, actually, it wasn't a Catholic school; it was, it was uh, some right, right-wing Protestant school, a religious school. Because don't you know, uh, the uh, vaccinated people can spread the spike protein, or some weird, you know, QAnon theory. Um,
5: We're still, we are, there's a lot of things going on right now, good information and bad information. Um, you know, ultimately, like I said, it depends on the individual. I, I'm i not getting the vaccine until I feel they compelled to do so. At this okay. point, I don't. I, I think it's more of a risk to me to take it than to not take it. I trust my immune system.
4: Okay, well, good luck with that, Julio. I hope you don't end up with a permanent lymph dick disease.
1: <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> I'm <laughs> not I, I can
4: okay. say that on the radio. Uh, Julio <laughs> Rivera, reactionarytimes.com. Oh, yeah, it's Julio on Twitter. Thank you, Julio. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Should we be mandating at least vaccine passports? (laughs) What a day, huh? Earl in Hyde Park, Illinois. Hey, Earl, what's on your mind today? Thanks for watching us on Free Speech. Hey, TV. Tom, thanks for uh, taking
6: my call. And I wanted to respond to that gentleman that you were just talking to. I don't know what countries that he's been going to in Europe, but most of the countries in Europe have a vaccination uh, uh, passport contract.
4: Yeah, yeah. I don't want to out Julio. I don't know if he wants people knowing where, what country he lives in, but I can tell you that it's one of the former Eastern European countries, and they're a whole lot more lax about this than are the uh, the former Western European countries.
6: But how can he get on an airplane without proving that he's had?
4: Uh, well, some of these some of the some of these countries that used to be part of the Soviet bloc and are now you know members of of uh, you know the European Union, you know they they have very different standards than France or Germany or England, so.
6: Well, I mean, I know when I was traveling to Europe, they were very tight as far as uh, health was concerned.
4: Yeah, yeah. It, 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 it all depends on the country. It all depends on the country and, and, and whether you're going to have to change you know, planes and things like that. I think he may have a tough time coming. I don't know. We'll see. But And let me
6: ask you a question. Can he get back in without it proving that he's had his vaccine shot or has had you know, a test within the last 10 days? Can he get back into the country?
4: I don't know. I'm guessing actually the, you know, the countries that that require proof of vaccination, their fallback is, and this is for people, you know, I mean, it's intended for people who can't get vaccinated, people who have compromised immune systems, people who have allergic reactions to vaccines, you know, stuff like that. There, There's a small, you know, a, a tiny fraction of 1% of the population that just can't take vaccines. And so for those people, they can get a, a nose swab, you know, they can get a, a, a COVID test. And if their COVID test is negative within the last 24 hours, then they can get in. But, you know, we'll, we'll see where it goes. Earl, great question. Thank you for the call. Ryan, again, Los Osos, California. Hey, Ryan, thanks for watching Free Speech. What's on your mind?
2: Hi, Tom. I was mainly calling Okay, I have a a Trump—we were always talking to a Trump person the other day in the neighborhood. I mean, very heavily Trump. And he was just saying that Trump's—you know, I told him, tell me one thing Trump's done right. He said, oh, judges. He picked the right judges. Mm -hmm. And once I explained to him, you know, things I learned from you, like the Powell memo, the the Supreme Federalist Society, giving the names to the federal (laughs) courts— Over the Supreme Court, he was shocked. His really? brain was blown. I mean, he's a smart guy, but he's been so deep. And he walked, started walking away and then turned back and he says, Well, the pandemic, the pandemic will tell. We'll see what happens with the pandemic. Huh. Like, that's what's been given into our mind that we are going to win because of what we're doing to the pandemic. So
4: we need to teach people about the Palma. In other words, he was shocked when he found out that these judges are just there to shill for billionaires and corporations. Yeah, he
2: was shocked. He was shocked. Huh. And why aren't we running off of that? Why yeah. aren't we exposing that? Hey, I write
4: I about it at least once a week. <laughs> you know, I'm ranting about it constantly. But I, I'm with you, Ryan. I
2: know. Uh, America it needs too. to know.
4: Uh, America absolutely needs to know. Uh, Ryan, thank you, thank, and good on you for taking on somebody and 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 talking with them. It's it's so important that we have those conversations, and good on you for educating somebody. Thank you so much for the call. And thanks so much for watching us on Free Speech TV. Stick around. It's the Tom Hartman University Book Club today. We're reading from the Crash of 2016. This is page 34. Prior to this, we've set up how conservatives saw the 60s as a time of great social chaos and the rise of Ralph Nader and Rachel Carlson and the whole consumer and environmental movements as threats to profitability and business, and they had to do something about it. So page 34. Lewis F. Powell Jr. was just sitting down to breakfast in his suite at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York City when he received a call from the White House. The year was 1971, more than 40 years since the last great crash. The 60s had ended and the Vietnam War had destroyed the Democratic Party, leaving Richard Nixon as president of the United States. And Nixon needed a favor. A thin, ascetic man with wispy hair and fragile features, Lewis Powell had ancestral roots in America's first European settlement, Jamestown, and a lifetime of participation in the law. He deeply loved his Richmond, Virginia home and the law practice he had there, which mostly consisted of defending corporate interests and wealthy Southern white men. He walked comfortably often in crepe-soled shoes, dressed as a Southern gentleman, and spoke so softly that people sometimes leaned forward to listen. But when he spoke, his words were precise, well-measured, and carefully considered. He was one of the most brilliant jurists of his day, And so it's no surprise that the Nixon White House was considering him for a seat on the Supreme Court, a job he turned down at first. But then when Nixon called him again at the Waldorf Astoria, he reluctantly accepted. As a Supreme Court justice, Lewis Powell was very much the moderate, and his legacy on the high court would reflect his balanced and authentic interpretation of the rule of law in America. However, just a few months before he was nominated by Nixon, Powell had written a memo to his good friend Eugene Sindor Jr., the director of the United States Chamber of Commerce at the time. And Powell's most indelible mark on our nation was not to be his 15-year tenure as a Supreme Court Justice, but instead that memo, which served as a declaration of war, a war by the economic royalists against both democracy and what they saw as an overgrown middle class. It would be a final war, a bella omnium contra omnis, against everything the New Deal and the Great Society had accomplished. It wasn't until September 1972, 10 months after the Senate confirmed Powell, that the public first found out about the Powell Memo. The actual document had the word confidential stamped on it, a sign that Powell himself hoped it would never see daylight outside of the rarefied circles of his rich friends. By then, however, it had already found its way to the desks of CEOs all across the nation and was, with millions in corporate and billionaire money, already being turned into real actions, policies, and institutions. During its investigation into Powell as part of the nomination process, the FBI never found the memo, but investigative journalist Jack Anderson did, and he exposed it in a September 28, 1972 column titled, Powell's Lessons to Business Aired. Anderson wrote, shortly before his appointment to the Supreme Court, Justice Lewis F. Powell, Jr. urged business leaders in a confidential memo to use the courts as a social, economic, and political instrument. Pointing out that the memo wasn't discovered until after Powell was confirmed by the Senate, Anderson wrote, Senators never got a chance to ask Powell whether he might use his position on the Supreme Court to put his ideas into practice and to influence the court on behalf of business interests. This was an explosive charge being leveled at the nation's rookie Supreme Court justice, a man entrusted with interpreting our nation's laws with absolute impartiality. But Jack Anderson was no stranger to taking on American authority and no stranger to the consequences of his journalism. He'd exposed scandals from the Truman, Eisenhower, Nixon, and later the Reagan administrations. He was a true investigative journalist. In his report on the memo, Anderson wrote, Paul recommended a militant political action program ranging from the courts to the campuses. Paul's memo was both a direct response to Roosevelt's battle cry decades earlier and a response to the tumult of the 1960s. He wrote, quote, No thoughtful person can question that the American economic system is under broad attack, end quote. When Sindor and the chamber received the Powell memo, corporations were growing tired of their second-class status in America. Even though the previous 40 years had been a time of great growth and strength for the American economy and America's middle-class workers, and a time of sure and steady increases in profits for corporations, CEOs felt something was missing. If they could only find a way to wiggle back into the people's minds, who were just beginning to forget the royalists' previous exploits in the 1920s that had crashed our economy, then they could get their tax cuts back. They could trash the burdensome regulations that were keeping the air we breathe the water we drink and the food we eat safe and the banksters among them could inflate another massive economic bubble to make themselves all mind-bogglingly rich it could if done right be a return to the roaring 20s but how could they do this how could they convince americans to take another shot at what was widely considered a dangerous free market ideology and economic framework and that Americans once knew preceded every great crash and war. But Lewis Powell had an answer, and he reached out to the Chamber of Commerce, the hub of corporate power in America, with a strategy. As Powell wrote, Strength lies in organization, in careful long-range planning and implementation, in consistency of action over an indefinite period of years, in the scale of financing available only through joint effort, and in the political power available only through unified action and national organizations. Thus, Powell said, the role of the National Chamber of Commerce is therefore vital. The crash of 2016. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally-sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week and it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, the two ends, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from CookUnity, and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro-kitchens, not large production facilities. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman.
1: CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be.
4: Tom Harman here with you. And I just wanted to share with you this, my rant over at harvardreport.com. And it's titled, Can America Go from Empire to Good Neighbor? And in a way, this kind of backstops the conversation with Julio because, you know, France, by mandating vaccines in order to basically participate in French civic life, is being a good neighbor to all the countries around them in slowing down and ultimately hopefully stopping the spread of this virus. The more rapidly it spreads, the more frequently it will mutate, and the more frequently those mutations are going to get really, really nasty and able to get around vaccines and things. But this goes way beyond just the vaccine. We in the United States have this long history, and we talked about this about the history of Haiti, Where, you know, finally they elected a a priest, uh, Jean-Baptiste Aristide, who was, uh, you know, a liberation theologist who who wanted to run the country for the people rather than for the, the, you know, basically the billionaires, the autocrats, the, the kleptocrats. And what did we do? We set him up to get overthrown. And I really think that we need to be rethinking our whole concept of foreign aid and our involvement in in foreign foreign countries. I mean, the modern era of this started after World War II with the Marshall Plan. And with the Marshall Plan, we did in Germany the exact opposite of what we did in Iraq and Afghanistan. In Iraq and Afghanistan, we said, okay, great, we blew up your country, we're going to rebuild it now, but we're going to have American companies come over with American parts and American technology and American contractors, and we're going to rebuild your country. Uh, and all the profit is going to come to American defense contractors and, and uh, construction companies and companies like Halliburton. that was uh, on the verge of bankruptcy when Dick, Dick Cheney, the CEO of Halliburton, became vice president. And now, you know, Halliburton is fabulously rich, as is Dick Cheney as a consequence of that. Uh, but Harry Truman had said, no, we're going to rebuild Germany with German steel and German cement. We're going to rebuild their infrastructure. We're going to help them rebuild their own infrastructure. And that, to the best of my knowledge, was really the last time that we did this in a way that makes sense. And, and I mean, there's just, that was, that was in the 40s. In 1951, a guy by the name of Mohammed Mossadegh took over Iran and said, hey, You know, you've got all these foreign oil companies and particularly American and British oil companies who are sucking the oil out of our country. It's our oil. We should use it to build roads and schools and hospitals and provide health care for people and provide education for people. And he kicked out the foreign companies. What was our response? The U.S. CIA and British intelligence got together and organized a coup against Mossadegh and installed the Shah. Within one year, the Shah had given away 40 percent of the oil fields in Iran to American companies. A bunch of American companies and a bunch of American families associated with those companies got insanely rich. And well, we see how it worked out for Iran, right? During the 1960 election, Jack Kennedy was beating up Richard Nixon over his letting Cuba go communist in 1959 when Nixon was vice president. Nixon had a plan to solve that. He was gonna have an October invasion in the October of 1960, the month before the election, with him against Kennedy, he was going to have an October invasion of Cuba. He got the he got a whole bunch of Cuban expats together down, they call it down in, in Miami, and they were ready to go. Uh, they ultimately couldn't make it happen. And that's what Jack Kennedy inherited, the whole Bay of Pigs thing. And Harry Williams, one of the guys who was one of the leaders of the Bay of Pigs, told me about a meeting that he had in the White House with Lyndon Johnson and Bobby Kennedy after Jack's. Assassination. It was about three months after his assassination, where they they Bobby had this operation, AM World, they you know, to assassinate Castro, and he he had signed up Juan Almeida the head of the uh, army, the Cuban army, to go along with us, and so they pitched it to LBJ, and LBJ said, "I don't want anything to do with those effing Cubans." You know, he was just sick of it. In fact, he thought that uh, for some time, he thought that Jack Kennedy had been assassinated by Castro. So he says, instead, I'm going to make my stand against communism as far away from the Northern Hemisphere as I can. I'm thinking Vietnam. That'll get the Republican communist hawks off my back. Yeah, that worked out real well. I mean, we just have this whole series, you know, the Chile and Argentina in 73 and 76. We supported both those coups through the CIA and with Anaconda, IT&T, International Telephone and Telegraph, and Kennecott Corporation. They, according to our State Department, they were involved in these coups. And then you get uh, what came out of that? General Pinochet throwing people out of airplanes. Uh, You know, I was in Argentina in 2000 during the hyperinflation that was arguably, you know, uh, one of the side effects of all this. It was years later. I've been in multiple countries and over and over and over again, what I'm seeing is, you know, American foreign policy and American war policy, Afghanistan and Iraq, huge examples. You know, we destroyed these countries. And now we're leaving. We sucked all this. You know what the what the GDP of Afghanistan was before we invaded? Two billion dollars with a B, not trillion, two billion dollars for the entire year.
3: You're listening to the Tom Hartman program.
4: Average family wealth in Afghanistan when we invaded was one hundred and fifteen dollars. We could have given them two billion dollars. They would have given us bin Laden and that would have been the end of it. On the line with us is our old buddy, Laurie Wallach, with TradeWatch.org, and Citizen.org slash Trade. Laurie is the Executive Director of Public Citizens Global Trade Watch. PCGTW on Twitter, or Wallach, W-A-L-L-A-C-H, Lori, L-O-R-I. Lori, welcome back. Tell us about, the last time we talked, which was, uh, it seems like a month or so ago, we were talking about TRIPS, this waiver that would allow basically poor countries that have the ability to manufacture or import from other poor countries that can manufacture vaccines to make their own versions of these highly effective uh, you know like the astrazeneca vaccine or the pfizer vaccine where is that at right now
0: so the good news is that 140 countries at the wto support it and it could really help scale up much more production of vaccines and treatments, and Tom, that's crucial Mm -hmm. because while life is starting to get back to normal here, Africa, parts of Latin America, parts of Asia are gripped with a third wave of COVID that is more brutal than either the previous two folks saw what was going on in India that's now happening all over Africa, that's happening in Peru and other parts of Latin America, and people there have a vaccination rate less than 1%. Wow. So it's a disaster. It's a disaster of death and the loss of livelihoods. And if you're in a poor country and you lock down, you starve. You become homeless. There is no reserve. So we've got to get more vaccine made. And just thinking of self-interest, any place that the any place that the virus is raging means a variant that could get around the vaccine could hatch, and that even if you had a vaccine, will all be started scratch again. So. Very bad situation. That's the good news, though, that a lot of countries support. The bad news? Germany, Angela Merkel, have almost single-handedly blocked the rest of the entire world enacting this thing at the WTO. Germany's got the European Union literally blocking the whole process because the WTO works by consensus.
4: I mean, first of all, for people who don't get it, consensus means 100% of everybody has to agree. So one parties saying no we don't want to have a waiver so that you know because without the waiver of course the only way to get these vaccines into these poor countries is to have astrazeneca or pfizer manufacture them and sell them at absurd prices with the waiver they can be made it's not going to hurt the vaccine companies they're going to make a small uh, income from these vaccines being made in third world countries, and it could save us all if 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 the next variant is twice as deadly or ten times as deadly or whatever, just so people get it. But so I'm assuming that I, I've heard. In fact, you know, I get your newsletter I, or your your emails, you know, regularly, and it looks to me like even in Germany, Angela Merkel is facing a lot of, uh, shall we say, pushback, <laughs> gently. And uh, tell me about it.
0: Well, what's very interesting is we have seen across the U.S., already starting last weekend, protests at German consulates all across the country. And if folks want to know how to get involved in these, you can go to TradeWatch.org. There's a list of all the activities. There are 18 different consulate protests. A lot of them are still happening. There was a ginormous one with hundreds of people in New York City. But, and as well, in front of the White House, a huge banner saying Germany stop blocking the COVID vaccine waiver was floated up with the background of the White House. New York Times story has that picture talking about the perversion of Merkel destroying her sixteen year legacy where she was seen as really a, a world leader with some compassion. When Why she is she doing opened this opened up Germany for Syrian refugees and, you know, seemed like the the face of democracy and in contrast to Trump acting like a lunatic. And yet, here she is about to have the end of her legacy as a pharma shill. I mean, it's literally Merkel versus the world against people getting life-saving vaccines.
4: You know, Angela Merkel is not an idiot. I mean, you know, she's got a Ph.D. in chemistry, as I recall. She's a very smart woman. She's a very competent politician, probably one of the most competent politicians in all of Europe. What possible rationalization is she using and is her rationalization or excuse or whatever the right word is is that popular in her own country in germany
0: so what's heartbreaking is one of the key rationalizations seems to be one that's pretty racist and neocolonialist and that is that there's no point in making this waiver anyway because those developing countries haven't the skill the technology the facilities to be able to make these medicines so it wouldn't help and the reality is, Tom, if you're in any place in Europe, in Germany, wherever, if you're in the U.S. a lot of times, then you need any number of different vaccines, flu, rabies, childhood vaccines. The likelihood is they're made in India right. by a place called the Serum Institute, which is, produces an astonishing third of the world's vaccines. So the notion it can't be done is ridiculous. And in fact, right now in South Africa, in other countries, scores of companies are making vaccines for COVID, the problem is they're making the versions that are, say, the Russian ones that aren't quite as good and they need three shots, or they're making the ones that are, um, you know, vaccines that are harder to get around to people. And so we have basically the U.S. and Europe having these mRNA vaccines, the only approved ones, they're the fastest to scale up production. 'Cause there are you know, there are no living cell lines. It's just all chemistry. And right. so lifting the patents, the copyrights, and sharing that technology is the way to most quickly get the whole world vaccinated. So the argument you can't do it is baloney. Probably the real argument is just ugly. And it's not informed either, and that is I think there's a sort of nationalism around the fact that one of the discoverers of those amazing mRNA vaccines is a German company called BioNTech. Right. But here's the part I don't get, because you're right, she's super smart and she's you know, a very competent politician. BioNTech sold the license for its creation. They're scientists there. They're not a manufacturing company. They sold it to Pfizer. So if a company is going to lose money on not being able to have absurd high prices, because Pfizer's acknowledged there's a global shortage of vaccine, they think next year they're getting away with charging. $175 a shot after they say the the, the the crisis is over in Europe and the U.S. Right now, it's 20 bucks, pandemic pricing. They reckon you don't get away with charging that much unless there's a shortage. Yeah. Pfizer, yeah. if anyone's going to lose money, it's going to lose money. Not the German company. The German company gets whatever the licensing fee is for every, me- every right. shot. And Pfizer's a publicly
4: pays. held company, isn't it, based here in the United States?
0: It's a U.S. company. It is. And it is a huge manufacturer. And it has been a hundred percent refusing to make agreements with other companies, even to pay Pfizer, to make more volume.
4: So, Angela Merkel is essentially the Joe Manchin of the world when it comes to vaccines.
0: heartbreaking but true, but here's the thing, everyone can help change this, because number one, if you go to TradeWatch.org. There is a big online action where at this point the german embassy in washington the main embassy is getting flooded tens of thousands of letters from americans basically saying angela merkel stop blocking this get out of the way of progress get germany on the right side of history and so you personally can help wave in tradewatch.org go to the action page but also there's still a dozen or more of these protests around the country so If you want to actually, and they're getting coverage, folks, they're getting coverage back in Germany. Our brothers and sisters who are trying also on the ground in Germany to move her are thanking us in the U.S. from helping them in partnership to try with solidarity to basically show she can't run, she can't hide. She needs to just get the hell out of the way of the vaccines. And wherever she goes, she's going to be under heat. So there's, you know, everyone can help because literally it's like, it's just this one last straw that has to be fixed and so we can get what we want.
4: There you go. And you can find out all about it at tradewatch.org. Lori Wallach, the executive director. Lori, great talking with you again. Thank you so much. Thank you. And keep up the great work. It is, uh, <laughs> it is amazing stuff. Stick around. So, welcome back changing foreign policy, dealing with COVID, vaccine passports, all all the various things. We've got a lot to talk about today. What a time, huh? Irving in Miami. Hey, Irving, what's on your mind today?
8: Hello, Tom, how are you doing today? Good, what's up? Yeah, I wanted to talk about the vaccine passports because that tends to be the hot topic nowadays, especially most recently. I know libertarians and others like Republicans have a problem with vaccine passports because in a way it feels like it, it limits or obstructs with their civil liberties. I tend to disagree and I'm, I myself am a libertarian. And the reason I say this is because I feel like other countries have the obligation and the right. Well, I feel like other countries have the right to ask people who are entering their country are crossing their borders to show verification or proof that they are vaccinated because these countries have an obligation to protect their citizenry from diseases and that's part of a government's function is to protect its citizens by any means necessary as long as they respect the you know international law and, and of course they respect their own laws as well But if I myself, for example, if I myself am heading to the United, if I myself, a U.S. citizen, am heading to Canada, okay, I will not be upset if Canada asks me for some verification of if I have a vaccine. Because they have the right to ask me to show proof of am I vaccinated or not. Because in a way, they have a duty to protect their own citizens.
4: Yeah, well, so and this is nothing I, new, by the way, Irving. I, I had mm-hmm. to, uh, in order to get into Kenya, as I recall, maybe it was Uganda, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it was Kenya. There's this yellow card. It's an international vaccine status card that you get, you know, from a I physician. Did. And I had to get a yellow fever vaccine. I had to have tetanus. I had to have what dengue? I think I, I, I forget what it was. There were there were three or four diseases that I had to be vaccinated for just to, just to get into that country. The airline wouldn't let me on the plane until I could prove that I was vaccinated because they knew that you know when we got to the to the other end I'd get put on the plane and be sent back home if I wasn't vaccinated. You know our schools right. do this. I think you're absolutely right. And by the way, what's so weird? Is that the same people who forty years ago and sixty years ago were saying, you know it's the absolute right of an individual store owner to refuse service to anyone, including because they don't like the way they look like their race, you know they were defending you right. know th- that they were defending that. and then and then the more modern era, they they defend store owners' right to have a sign that says no shoes, no service, right? no shirt, no shirt, no shoes, no service. Um, so why shouldn't store owners be able to say no vaccine no service hey you know no shirt no shoes no vaccine you just go someplace else and why shouldn't Mm -hmm. countries be able to do that either I you know I think you framed the argument very well uh, you know with the the duty to protect thank you very much for that John in West Fork Arkansas listening on KPSQ hey John what's up
1: hey Tom Um, about uh, Saudi Arabia spying you mentioned in passing that Merrick Garland had decided not to prosecute Wilbur Ross for lying to Congress. Yeah.
8: I just want to give you a heads up. I've come across a couple of sources saying that this I, story. I is was not wrong. True. It was Bill Barr.
4: Yeah. Okay. I should know if you were aware of that. Yeah. That was a week or so ago that, that I did that rant, but. Yeah I, okay, I, I okay. yeah, yeah, I caught that last night. I wasn't very okay. Yeah, I caught that last night, and in fact, on Democratic Underground, I think somebody posted it that it wasn't. Yeah. it wasn't uh, Merrick Garland who made that decision. It was Bill Barr?
1: And, Garland isn't doing some things I don't
4: like, but I, not in this case. Yeah, I agree with you. And it turns out now we have learned it's not just Wilbur Ross; it's five different cabinet secretaries were referred mm-hmm. by their individual inspector generals in their own departments to the Department of Justice for Prosecution. And in every single one of those five cases, Bill Barr or whoever preceded him as attorney general right. said, "Nay, we'll just let the criminals get away with it because, you know, they're big friends of Donald Trump. So uh, blind uh, network, yeah. Yeah, there you go. John, thanks for the call. And, you know, good on you for working to set things straight. And thanks for the reminder. Brian in Tacoma, Washington. Hey, Brian, what's on your mind?
1: I just wanted to contend what Julio was saying about traveling to Europe. I'm a tourism management professional who is, as we speak, planning a trip for a bunch of people to Europe that may still get canceled, because because well you know why because but it's absolutely just mischaracterization when Julio's like I don't want my my you know, and I don't want to be restricted when I go to Europe. I just want to be able to travel there, and it's not happening in Europe. It's totally happening in Europe. They, all over the place, they have vaccine mandates. Now, you can usually get around the mandates, but very often you have to get a test before you go. You have to, uh, you have to self-isolate for five to 14 days if you don't, you know, if you're coming from different countries. The point is that every single country has assessed every other country, and they all have their own set of rules about every other single country. So just the, the characterization by julio that like no right now i can just travel to europe no problem and that shouldn't right. be impi- impeded it's absolutely untrue it's what? absolutely sorry it's absolutely a mischaracterization yeah. yes in many cases he could go without a vaccine but he would have to pay for his own uh, self-isolation for up to 14 days and his test and it's just it's, it's and I'm
4: happening. guessing he's doing he's that. Say, you know, I, 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 Julio has, has you know, I, I've known Julio for a few years and he's never just like straight up lied to me. I mean, you know, he'll, he'll push crazy positions on the right, but you know, saying that he's not vaccinated, I completely believe him. And I'm guessing that what he's doing is he's doing the required COVID test before he gets on the airplane and showing the certificate that he's COVID negative to get through customs and things like that. But I think he's going to he, have a challenge when he goes, when he tries to go back home to Europe. But
1: in mi- in many cases, that's true. But in many cases, depending on which country you have come from, mm-hmm. you still have to prove, you still have to isolate once you're there, depending on which country you've come from. Currently, yeah. the U.S. is one where you generally only have to prove once your test. But I mean, the point is is you can't just freely travel around Europe. Even hotels and restaurants are requiring a test within the last 72 hours often. So for instance, if you if you got over there, but then you were there for a week and then you went into a hotel, you probably have to sh- get a new test. Right. So it's just, it's, it's,
4: yeah. It seems like it wouldn't be That's worth the trouble, know. but yeah, I, I, I agree with everything you're saying, Brian. And, and thank you for uh, an authoritative voice weighing in on this, I appreciate it. John in Bowie, Maryland. Hey John, what's on your mind?
6: Well, I just want to make a comment on Julio, I guess his position. And, and no one's really talking about this, but there's a medical cost that, that comes along with COVID. And some of, the, some of these people who, who don't want to, you know, wear the mask, become vaccinated, if they end up sick, they're going to have to pay a tremendous amount of money. And everyone knows that when, when it comes to hospitals and, and hospital bills, that's the number one cost in certain areas for bankruptcy.
4: John, let me backstop you on this, and then you can finish your rant here. uh, Yesterday, the Journal of the American Medical Association published a new study that found that there are $140 billion in unpaid medical bills in the United States. Roughly one in five people in the United States has medical debt that has been turned over to a collection agency. You know, it has been sold to a third party. National Nurses United said this is not the sign of a broken system. It's a profiteering health care system working just the way the corporate price gougers want it to. Medical debt is highest among people who live in the South in states that did not expand Medicaid. That's a dozen states all controlled by Republicans. And this new national survey conducted by the Commonwealth Fund found that more than a third of insured U.S. adults and half of uninsured U.S. adults had difficulties in the past year paying for medical bills or paying off medical debt. Uh, it's mind boggling. And you're absolutely right. COVID is adding to that.
6: Yeah. And I think that no one really, really uh, talks about that. Now, if you really want to stop this whole debate on whether it's vaccinated or not, then you... You should put a surcharge or a cost on that, because right now we're dealing with medical welfare. As far as I'm concerned, folks are getting out here thinking they can do whatever they want to do. They get sick and then we're putting the bill because basically our rates have to go up or, or some cost to us will have to go up to pay for what they've done.
4: Exactly. and And I'm just waiting to see how long it's going to be. And I don't think it's going to be very long at all. I'm guessing probably in the next month or so that the big health insurance companies are gonna start saying, if you are not vaccinated and you want us to pay for your your $100,000 a day stay in the ICU when you get COVID, we're gonna consider that a preventable condition and you can pay your own damn bills. And I'm surprised, frankly, they haven't done it before now, John. And when that happens, uh, maybe, maybe that'll be an incentive for people. I don't know, It, it requires some thinking ahead. John, thank you. you your points are very, very well made. And I appreciate the call. Thank you for listening to us on SiriusXM. More of your calls and my rants on the other side of this break. Stick around.
3: You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives.
4: We're just getting started here. It's the Tom Hartman program. Speaking the truth, the multinational corporations would really rather you didn't know all about Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Let's pick up some phone calls here. Jeffrey in Des Moines, Iowa. Hey, Jeffrey, what's on your mind today? Thanks for watching us on First Speech.
3: Yeah, thank you. It just strikes me oftentimes in corporate media how you'll hear that Protests in Cuba are in opposition to socialism, and then two minutes later, you'll hear about um, far more violent um, protests where more people are dead in South Africa, and you don't ever hear that they're protests against capitalism. And yeah. it's just, I guess I'd say two things about that. I mean, if you're going to assign protests to an economic system, be consistent. So if you say Peru or Colombia, then I suppose you better say it's against capitalism. But the other dynamic is, I mean, I'm a teacher, and all Countries have mixed economies. I, there, there really aren't barely any capitalist countries or socialist countries in the world. All countries have have mixed economies. The irony being that in Cuba, a lot of the uh, sanctions on remittances and cruise ships not coming in are really hurting an emerging private sector. Yeah. <laughs> as, as you know, we know that the private sector needs uh, money to recycle. And uh, as Cuba tries to develop sort of a model, like kind of a, like a state capitalism, maybe Vietnam or, or Chinese style, it's, it's really the private sector that's suffering a lot from, from some of these initiatives. And, and they, right. had,
4: they had, when Louise and I were there, it was uh, the last year, I think, of the Obama administration, in March of that year, on this tour with uh, Code Pink, you know, a uh, group. The restaurants that we went to all over Cuba, I mean, or all over Havana anyway, and a couple of outside of Havana, they had legalized basically small enterprise. You could have your own restaurant and you could have up to 50 tables. Or maybe it was mm. the, you could seat up to 50 people. I, I remember the 50. It was one or the other. And, you know, we visited all these small restaurants that, you know, were little family enterprises. And they weren't state-run yeah. at all. They weren't state-owned or anything. I mean, you know, right. uh, so, th- yeah. so they were actually far more liberal in that regard than Vietnam or, or China. <laughs> yeah.
3: A, so. a few months ago, before COVID, there was a meeting here at Drake University where some Cuban officials were here talking about their changes in agriculture. And it was actually kind of funny because the Cuban officials were speaking, hey, you know, we, Monsanto and others, they can come in but we will regulate their behavior it was actually kind of funny because the professors and other people at drake were literally pushing back on them saying are, are, you, are you sure you want so much of this right. <laughs> I, I didn't ever think i would see that dynamic but it was it was um it was an interesting one but thank you for your time and all your good work
4: yeah no you, jeffrey you are so spot on on this and, and also when we were in Cuba, one of the other things that we saw were small farms that, that some of the larger uh factory farmers or yeah, it's not the right word but the, the old soviet style um you know a thousand acres being farmed by a bunch of people who are you know and, but it's owned by the by the state they were starting to break those up and, and giving yep. the land to individual peasant families who then became farmers and you know it was an entree into the middle class so anyhow jeffrey thank you for the call that was very thoughtful very insightful and I appreciate it we'll be back it's the tom hartman program stay right here This is the Tom Harmon University Book Club. Today we're reading from Living in the Chemical Age, How an Ounce of Prevention Can Protect Your Family from a World of Toxins by Dr. Janet Newman. This is from Chapter One. How did we end up here? In modern history, we entered the Industrial Age with the invention of steam-driven engines in the 1760s. In the Technological Age, the Second Industrial Age, which took place between 1870 and 1914, we saw the advancement and expansion of both manufacturing and electrically powered systems. In the last quarter of the 20th century, we entered the information age when computers and the internet became the norm. Famous author and editor Leon Whiteseiler wrote a poignant book review in the New York Times on January 11, 2015, which said, quote, every technology is used before it is completely understood. There's always a lag between innovation and the apprehension of its consequences, end quote. While these great advances in modern history have made aspects of our lives easier and more convenient, a negative byproduct has resulted that we are beginning to recognize. It now seems that we are in the full-blown midst of what I refer to as the chemical age, an era in which our environments and bodies are the constant recipient of a deluge of chemicals, which are the unfortunate byproducts of our drive for advancement. This bombardment of toxic chemical exposure is silent and, in most cases, hidden but it has the potential to be deadly. These chemicals are in our food and in our tap water and on any given day we're exposed to dozens of toxins in our environment as well as in the products we choose to clean our homes and to use on our bodies. For the first time in human history the New England Journal of Medicine tells us children born today will have a shorter projected lifespan than their parents in large part due to obesity related diseases, cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, etc. They will likely get diagnosed with a disease at an earlier age and die earlier than their parents. Generations have always outlived the generation before them, but not anymore. People are getting sicker earlier. But why? A growing number of doctors and scientists now recognize many illnesses result from excessive exposure to toxic materials in our environment. The body tends to become inflamed and accumulate fat when storing excess toxins. This is a global wake-up call. How did we get to this point? And what can you do to keep yourself and your family safe? Many scientists and notable organizations, such as the Agency for Toxic Substances and the Disease Registry, have begun to study the impact of toxic substances on humans, which is an essential first step to fixing the problems we're encountering. For example, the incidence of colon and rectal cancer, once considered rare in young people, is on the rise in people in their 20s and 30s. According to the American Cancer Society, people born in 1990 have doubled the colon cancer and quadruple the risk of rectal cancer compared to someone born in 1950. This ominous trend is part of a larger trend toward increased rates of cancer in general. According to Cancer.org, today one in two males and one in three males have a lifetime risk of developing cancer. Cancer is widely known to be related to the lifestyle and environment. The American Cancer Society says that only five to 10 percent of all cancer cases can be attributed to genetic defects. Almost 25 to 30 percent of all cancer deaths today are due to tobacco. As many as 30 to 35 percent are linked to diet and obesity, and 15 to 20 percent are due to infections, mostly liver cancer-related to hepatitis C or alcohol use. The remaining percentage, somewhere between 5 and 25 percent, is mostly due to environmental pollutions, radiation exposure, and stress. The emerging science of epigenetics, which looks at how the environment impacts your genes, is showing us that toxins that can activate the genes responsible for causing cancer. The choices we make have a powerful effect on which genes are switched on and off, and ultimately on whether we get cancer or not. However, cancer isn't the only concern. The 2013 documentary film The Human Experiment points out that 7.3 million American couples have trouble conceiving or carrying to term. This is a 49% increase since 1988 with the biggest increase in women under 25. Autism and other childhood diseases are also on the rise. According to the CDC, in the 1980s, about one in 10,000 children had autism. In 1999, one in 500 kids had autism. In 2008, it was one in 88 kids. And in 2016, it was one in 68 children. It's five times more common in boys. The current figures for autism are 1 in 42 boys and 1 in 189 girls. In the past 50 years, childhood asthma has gone up 80%, leukemia 74%, ADHD 53%, and life-threatening birth defects are up 100%. Something in our environment must be playing a role in these staggering trends. Did you know that air pollution is rising in world cities at an alarming rate? According to the World Health Organization, outdoor air pollution has grown 8% globally every year since 2012, with billions of people around the world now exposed to dangerous air. Dr. Flavia Bustreo, Assistant Director General for Family, Women's and General Children's Health for the World Health Organization, has said, quote, As urban air quality declines, the risk of stroke, heart disease, lung cancer, and chronic and acute respiratory diseases, including asthma, increases for the people who live in them. When dirty air blankets are cities, the most vulnerable are the most impacted, living in the chemical age. Marcus in Chicago. Hey Marcus, what's on your mind?
7: Hey, good afternoon, Tom. I'm gonna cut right to the chase and it's gonna upset some people, especially those on the right, especially maybe some white people. I bought this uh, vaccine passport. These same people, that want to go to other countries and do as they please, those same people will stand up against people from other countries that will come here and not have a vaccine passport. The same people that don't want to wear a mask or prove that they've been vaccinated before they go into a restaurant or whatever place of business. Those are the same people that listen to Fox News, so-called news is what I call them, QAnon yeah. and all of that. Yeah. These are white people, and I it's been lie, this you. way through history. If it's not white, it's not right. It's my way or the highway. You know, they talk about their civil liberties. Well, you're you a... Uh, uh, treading on my civil liberties if if you want me to wear a mask or to get a vaccine well, what about my civil liberties mm-hmm. for me not wanting to get sick from whatever you may have
4: i uh, and i would add i think just, i think it's the same thing with the gun argument what about my right not to get shot
7: yeah that's a big one too but you know, I, it just blows my mind right. you know um that you care more about you than you do humanity yeah i'm with you i'm with
4: you and it's particularly bizarre when you learn that fox news has their own internal vaccine passport they call it the fox clear pass that the the fox employees all go along with everybody there is vaccinated yes Um, i mean
7: when the fox news when this pandemic first hit the fan you know and they were advising us well, you don't have to get the vaccine or you don't have to wear a mask just go out go to work and do that all of those people were working remotely from home yep every one of them yep
4: and when they got back in the studio it because they were all vaccinated i mean you know it's exactly. and then when this uh, reporter I think it was Carol Leonig, but I could be wrong, asked Tucker Carlson, you know, have you been vaccinated? And he was like, well, that's a terrible personal question. When was the last time you had sexual intercourse? It's like, really? I mean, this is your argument? It's a personal question? You know, no, it's, all it's a public
7: health question. People that follow them and listen to them, they all fail for the, I'll call it, the kind. Yeah. You know, you people can't see that you're being lied to. Yeah. And then once they find out, that this has been going on at fox this is what i see now Oh well, they never said don't wear the mask and not get the vaccine
4: yeah right you know yeah and yeah. now the crazy followers are moving to the next right-wing network it's a bizarre marcus thank you for the call so well said Hey, special thanks to Louise Hartman, Sean Taylor, Nate Atwell, Jamie Holly, Joyce the Hammer Nance, Nigel Peacock, Sue Netherkin, Patrick White, Geraldine Halbert, Ron Hartenbaum, Chase Spross, Nicholas Miller, Pat Sweeney, Jabberwocky, Jay LeBlanc, Connor Arroyo, and Carne Verde. All the folks who work on this program. And thank you to you for uh, participating with our program and spreading the good word and supporting our sponsors and our stations. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it.
3: You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.